Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. In 1994, Yale literary critic Harold Bloom created a massive list of the works he considered the standards of Western literature, beginning with the Bible. In 2016, two overly educated autodidacts, one a professional, the other an interested layman, set out to read every book on the list. Thus was born The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read every book in Bloom's list and along the way explore the whole notion of a canon to begin with. From Dante's Inferno to Ibsen's Dollhouse, from Don Quixote's Extremadura to Elizabeth Bennet's Hertfordshire, join Daniel and Claude as they provide critical commentary, analysis, and from-the-gut personal reactions for all of the books you are too lazy or hungover to read in undergrad. That's The Cannonball. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Today we have a special interlude, recounting a great discovery early in the 20th century. Dating to the reign of Amunhotep III, the father of Akhenaten, this archaeological find is not as famous as some, but it remains one of the more significant. A glimpse past the royal and elite culture of the palace, to people living in slightly more humble conditions. This is the story of Ka the architect, his wife Merit, and their forgotten tomb in the hills west of Thebes. This episode is supported by everyone who has joined the podcast on Patreon. Thank you very much for your generosity, folks. It means a lot to me that people enjoy my work and are willing to help me do more of it. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. And thank you to everyone who is listening, patron or otherwise. Your support is wonderful. I hope you enjoy the show. The year was 1906 CE, in the dusty hills west of Luxor, ancient Waset or Thebes. It was mid-February, towards the end of winter, a time when most excavations were winding down and labourers were returning to their fields. Throughout Egypt, the cooler months and the annual flooding of the Nile were coming towards their end. The archaeologists were going home. At least, most of them were. In the dusty hills of Luxor, one team was still digging. They were working on the slopes above Deir el-Medina, the ancient village of the tomb builders, home of the artisans who shaped the fabulous royal graves, still being discovered in the Valley of the Kings. On these rocky mounds, a gang of some 200 Egyptian men were scraping sand and turning soil, watched by the stern eye of their foremen. 
The leaders of this team were named Ernesto Schiaparelli and Arthur Weigal. Both were experienced workers. Schiaparelli was a 50-year-old Italian who had become head of the Egyptian Museum in Turin at a young age. By now, he was well established in the young field of Egyptology. In 1905, just one year earlier, Schiaparelli had opened the tomb of Queen Nefertari, easily one of the most beautiful sepulchres ever discovered. Now, he was working the hills of Deir el-Medina, always on the lookout for new antiquities and prestige in the field. Arthur Weigal, meanwhile, was just 26 years old, but already well established. At an early age, he had apprenticed to William Flinders Petrie, easily the foremost archaeological scientist of his day. Weigal had worked at Abydos, then Saqqara, and at the age of just 25, he had been unexpectedly appointed as overseer of antiquities for Upper Egypt. This happened after the previous occupant, one Howard Carter, got fired. Stepping into Carter's shoes, Weigal was a young, enthusiastic, and ascendant man. Weigal was also experiencing a good patch. In 1905, the same year that Schiaparelli discovered the tomb of Nefertari, Mr. Weigal had been involved in a most spectacular find. He had been part of the team that opened the intact, fully furnished tomb of Yuya and Tuya, parents of Queen T and parents-in-law of Amunhotep III. We witnessed that discovery in episode 97b, when Weigal described Yuya and Toya's tomb as, quote, Imagine entering a townhouse which has been closed for the summer. Imagine the stiff, silent appearance of the furniture, the feeling that some ghostly occupants have just been disturbed. That was perhaps the first sensation as we stood, really dumbfounded, and stared at the relics of over 3,000 years ago, all of which were as new as when they graced the palace of Prince Yuya. End quote. Weigal's letters, which he wrote to his fiancée, Hortense Schleiter, are a fascinating window into Egyptological exploration at the dawn of the 20th century. You can find a batch of them in an article by one Charles Nicholas Reeves published in 2013, to which I've provided a link. Among other things, Weigal's letters include colourful descriptions of his time in Luxor, and adorable character sketches of notable men of the time. Caricatures of such luminaries as Howard Carter and Gaston Maspero grace Weigal's letters, adding that all-important flavour to the stories of great discoveries. Anyway, in early 1906, Weigal and Schiaparelli, the head of the excavation team, were working in the hills above Deir el-Medina, the village of the tomb builders. In this ancient community lived the artisans, painters, sculptors and architects that created the great tombs. Together with their families, these middle-class specialists helped construct the most beautiful graves of any culture anywhere in the world. Sepulchres of the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, and the Tombs of the Nobles bore their handiwork, along with many smaller monuments belonging to their own leaders. It was this cemetery, the cemetery of the workers themselves, that Schiaparelli and Weigal were investigating. Early in 1906, the team had been working for about four weeks already. It was hot, dry, and laborious. Two hundred Egyptian men clearing sand, hoping to find something that would make the expedition worthwhile. Fortunately, they were about to find it. One lucky day, some of the workers at last uncovered something. A flight of steps cut into the earth, running steeply down towards a passageway. 
Choked with debris from the ancient excavation and burial, this passage cut its way into the hillside before arriving at a solid wall of stones piled together in a barrier. Schiaparelli, Weigal, and their team photographed the wall, then removed it, revealing a long tunnel with a low roof leading further into the mountain. At the end of this second passageway, another wall of rough stones blocked the corridor. With growing excitement, the investigators realised that both of the walls, outer and inner, were actually intact, with no breakages from robbery. This meant that, whatever secrets lay on the other side, they seemed to be undisturbed since ancient times. Again, the excavators photographed the blockage and had it removed. With the stones gone, a third corridor revealed itself. The ceiling was about six feet high, but sloping downward towards a third and final blockage. Before they could get to that last obstacle, though, the excavators had to appreciate their luck. Arranged to one side, somebody had placed a number of items along the left-hand wall. In the gloom, the men could see baskets, pottery, and wooden furniture, including a stool, a carrying pole, and even a bed. These items seemed to be leftovers from an ancient funeral procession, deposited in the corridor when the mourners had finished. Such goods suggested a tomb, undisturbed since the original moment of its sealing. Sixteen years before the discovery of Tutankhamun, intact burials were still a rarity. This was an exciting day indeed. Looking past the objects scattered along the wall, the excavators faced one final barrier. A door made of timber slats arranged vertically presented a unique obstacle. It had a locking mechanism made of wood, and a bronze handle was connected to the frame, sealed with clay. Looking at this arrangement, the investigators were amazed, and a beautiful blonde moment ensued. Quote, The whole contrivance seemed so modern that Professor Schiaparelli called to his servant for the key, who quite seriously replied, I don't know where it is, sir. End quote. Facing a wooden door which seemed fresh, the excavator Schiaparelli understandably had a moment of confusion. Mistaking it for a recent construction, the professor assumed that it was accessible by modern means. When disabused, the Italian archaeologist went one more beautiful step further. Quote, the professor then thumped the door with his hand to see whether it would be likely to give. And as the echoes reverberated through the tomb, one felt that the mummy in the darkness beyond might well think that his resurrection call had come. Knocking on the door, Schiaparelli seemed to be summoning the very spirits of the dead to rise and open the way. For Arthur Weigal, watching and commentating, the moment was profound, and although it seems slightly absurd a century later, at the time, it may have been as though the occupant was about to rise from his sleep and return to the world of the living. Which, in a way, he was. The door was removed carefully and taken away for preservation. With the way open, Schiaparelli and Weigal could now get a glimpse at the wonders behind the wood. What they saw was a sight for the ages. From the gloom, wonderful sights emerged. Two huge sarcophagi dominated the space, their black painted wood gleaming dully. Shrouds draped over their tops, just as the mourners had left them, and piled up around the room, boxes, furniture, and baskets revealed the grave goods untouched for 3,300 years. Schiaparelli and Weigal had discovered an intact burial, 
untouched since the day the tomb was sealed. It was a most spectacular find, one that still is technically unmatched. Who did these sarcophagi belong to? Who were the owners of this tomb? Well, let's find out. It is time to step back further and meet the individuals whom Schiaparelli, with his loud banging, was disturbing so rudely. Two Egyptians, a man and a woman, were about to emerge from 3,300 years of darkness. As the knocking echoed through their chamber, a moment of glory had arrived for a man named Ka and a woman named Merit. Let's meet them. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Ka and Merit lived between 1450 and 1390 BCE, approximately. Theirs was the Egypt of late Dynasty 18, an age of empire, trade, artistic prosperity, and an energetic royal household. Ka, the elder of the couple, probably entered this world around 1450 BCE, give or take. He was born in the later years of the III, warrior pharaoh, and he reached maturity under the majesty of Akkeperure, Amunhotep II. As an adult, Ka would enjoy a long and distinguished career, serving Amunhotep II, his successor Tutmose IV, and his successor Amunhotep III, the dazzling sun disk of Egypt. Over four decades of work, Ka would become a respected and valued servant of the royal house. In typical Egyptian fashion, we know far more about Ka than we do Merit. His career and service to the state have left many clues, not least of which are the tools which he used in his job and preserved in his tomb. Not least of which are the tools that he used in his job. Ka took these instruments with him to the afterlife, and they provide a wonderful glimpse at his work and tasks. Ka was a builder. Specifically, he was an overseer of royal works, the person who designed monuments, managed projects, and took responsibility for their completion. He's often described as an architect, but it might be more accurate to call him a surveyor, a planner, and an organiser. Instead of imagining a man seated at a work table, drawing schematics and blueprints for structures, we should probably imagine Carr out in the sun with a piece of string and some measuring tools. Carr, overseer of royal works, was the type of man who made Pharaoh's ideas a reality. For this, he became wealthy and respected. Early in his career, Ka received a reward from the king of Egypt, Amunhotep II. A gold measuring rod inscribed with Amunhotep's cartouches is one of the more eye-catching pieces of Ka's burial goods. This rod measures one cubit long, about 52 centimetres or 1.7 feet and it seems to have been a gift from the pharaoh himself, a recognition of good service to the crown. What exactly did Carr do? Well, that's tricky. We're not sure, but it is entirely possible that Carr was responsible for planning or overseeing the construction of royal tombs. 
The sepulchres of Amunhotep II, Tutmose IV, and Amunhotep III are similar to those of the early 18th dynasty, but they collectively display a number of refinements and innovations. It is tempting to imagine that a single designer was responsible for the plan of all three tombs. In that hypothetical scenario, it's possible that Ka was the one who perfected the design. Unfortunately, we can't be sure of that. The tomb of Ka itself is undecorated, and he doesn't mention a specific monument or project in any of his titles. So it's impossible to know, maybe Ka designed tombs, maybe not. All we can say for sure is that the man worked on royal building projects and received rich rewards for his service. As for Merit, well, we don't know nearly as much. Based on her mummy, she was probably born around 1430 BCE. She lived through the later reign of Amunhotep II, the full reign of Totmose IV, and the first few years of Amunhotep III. In that time, she grew up, married Ka, bore three children, and finally died around the age of 30. At the time of her passing, Merit was about 1.6 metres tall, or 5 foot 2, and she still had reasonably good teeth. And that's really all we know about her as a human being. Merit died first, many years before her husband. We know this because the majority of their tomb goods have his name on them, suggesting that after Merit died, Ka continued using all of their domestic furniture. Only when he passed did the household's bed, chairs, tools, and various goods go into the sepulchre as well. So, at first, Merit's mummy would have slept in a mostly empty chamber. Her personal effects, some food offering, linen, and maybe a couple of pieces of furniture, were all the accoutrement available. It's possible that Merit died quite suddenly or unexpectedly. Although she is buried in a magnificent coffin and wears a beautiful mummy mask, these items were not originally designed for her. In fact, they belong to Ka, and they bear his face. It seems that Ka was preparing his own funerary goods when suddenly Merit passed away. Unprepared for the situation, Ka did the only thing a loving husband could. He donated his own funerary items for her use. The result is slightly amusing in a macabre sense. Merit was about 10 centimetres shorter than her husband, and when they placed her mummy in a coffin that was designed for him, well, let's just say that Merit is tiny by comparison. To keep her body stable, the mourners had to pack Merit's coffin with linen. They surrounded her mummy in a protective layer of cloth, many pieces of which were monogrammed with Ka's name. This is a lovely touch in my mind, a final gesture from a caring spouse who wanted his wife to be safe on her journey. Merit's body went into its borrowed coffin, that anthropoid case was then placed inside a large sarcophagus made of wood and painted with shiny black resin. Nestled inside these two layers, Merit's body was ready for eternity. Based on her funerary goods, we can tell that Merit enjoyed a comfortable lifestyle. Her personal belongings included various pieces of linen and clothing. She also had elaborate wigs, which were kept in beautifully painted boxes. You can see images of these items on the podcast website, link in the episode description. Merit's jewellery is particularly fine. Around the waist of her mummy, under the wrappings, the lady wears a girdle made of cowrie shells. She also wears a broad collar made of gemstones and gold. Two pairs of earrings in the form of golden hoops, 
and finally, a set of finger rings, four of them. She also has a necklace made of beads and a beaded bracelet. All of these items seem to have been things Merit might have used in her day-to-day life, and when it came time to bury her, Ka put all of his wife's jewellery on her at once, so that she could use it in eternity. As a final gesture, Ka made a last-minute addition to Merit's burial. The lady's mummy mask sits atop her head over the wrappings, but wedged underneath the mask, someone had inserted a golden ring. Perhaps the grieving widower Ka made a final contribution to his wife's burial goods. You can imagine him slipping a ring off his own finger and placing it on the mummy just before sealing her coffin shut. Whoever put the ring there, it was an affectionate gesture indeed. Merit probably died somewhere around 1400 BCE, give or take. She was approximately 30 years old at death, and considering how many of her goods were borrowed from Ka, we can guess she passed away in childbirth or perhaps a sudden illness. The exact cause of death is unclear, unfortunately. All we know is that she was young, much younger than her husband, when she passed to the realm of Osiris. Ka lived for several years after his wife. Continuing to work, he eventually reached the ripe old age of 60 before he too succumbed to death. When that day came, the husband joined the wife and the tomb was prepared for its final burial. Among the many, many objects in this tomb, a few pieces stand out. Firstly, there is the beautiful wooden box which held Merit's cosmetics. A rectangular painted case, decorated with lotus flowers and a checkerboard pattern, holds vases and bottles for her beauty routine. We see a blue alabastron, a type of vessel used to hold oils or perfumes. It's made of high-quality glass and painted with beautiful waves. Also, a tube in the shape of a palm tree, also made of glass and painted with the same pattern. This tube was used for Marit's eye paintbrush. You know how mascara brushes are held in a small tube? It's the exact same thing, a near-identical type of beauty accessory from 3300 years ago. We also have Merit's wig, a mass of black human hair styled in plaits. The wig's hair is 54 centimetres long, with three distinct tresses, one at the back, two smaller ones on each shoulder. The wig was housed in a tall wooden box, shaped like a shrine. To fetch the hairpiece out, one simply lifted the lid and raised it off its support. We actually see Merit wearing this wig in the illustrations of the Book of the Dead, which was placed in their tomb before its closing. Thanks to that papyrus, we get a wonderful synergy between the physical object and the eternal image of the youthful woman. The tomb also contained Ka and Merit's beds. These are separate pieces, what we would consider single beds today. The beds are made of wood, with a wooden wall at one end of the feet. From this footrest, the bed slopes upward slightly. At the top, a headrest supported the neck. The beds are beautiful, painted white, with feet in the shape of lion's paws. Amusingly, only Merit's bed was actually found in the tomb itself. The bed belonging to Ka was too big for the chamber, and when the mourners sealed the grave shut, they left his bed in the corridor next to the door. That bed was recovered by the excavators, and is now in the museum alongside Merit's. One of Ka's chairs is worth mentioning. 
It's a beautiful piece of painted wood standing about 91 centimetres high. The chair has a straight back and the legs are designed like a lion's. The base of this chair is woven like one you might find in Egypt today. The back is painted with black and white rectangles with lotus flowers and a spiral pattern on the top. The backrest is bordered in white with a band of black diamonds filling in the space. It is a beautiful piece, probably the pride of Carr's audience room. When preparing the man for his funeral, craftsmen painted a funerary text on the chair and it was placed in his tomb. When the excavators found this chair, it had a statue standing on top of it. This is a small image of Carr himself, made of wood and painted dark brown. His hair is thick and black in the Nubian style fashionable at the time. Carr stands with his left foot forward, a traditional pose, and each hand resting on the front of his kilt, traditionally interpreted as a gesture of humility. The statue is designed to show Carr wearing a long robe, but on top someone placed a real shawl made of dried flowers and woven flax. This statue is so beautiful, I've used it for the episode logo. Anyway, the coffins belonging to Carr and Merit are exquisite examples of the craft. They are made of wood with a thin layer of gold to enhance the splendour, giving further hints of the wealth that this couple enjoyed. There are three anthropoid coffins, two for Carr, one for Merit, and these were housed inside rectangular sarcophagi. As I mentioned earlier, Merit's coffin originally belonged to Carr, and her mummy is far too small for the cavity, so Merit's coffin was packed with linen to give her some extra stability. Carr, meanwhile, enjoyed his afterlife in a pair of coffins, one nestled inside the other. On his head, Carr wore a beautiful mask of gilded wood. With a sombre expression, almost pensive, Carr's golden visage lay secluded in its tomb until the rediscovery. Next to his coffin, Carr took a full set of his working tools. Wooden pallets with brushes mark his scribal kit. A pair of measuring rods, one of them foldable, were his surveying tools. We also see chisels and an adze made of wood and metal. These are no decorative or symbolic items. The tools in Carr's tomb are the ones he used in life. They are worn, stained, and battered by use, a mark of the builder's efforts in his many years of work. We also have Carr's personal effects, including his sandals and his clothes. We even have his shaving kit, a set of bronze razors with a sharpening stone to help him keep his tools on edge. A set of metal scissors in the shape of a galloping horse complete the kit, and various jars contained ointments that the man might need to stay fresh, groomed, and scented in the next life. My personal favourite from this tomb is the linen comprising Carr's wardrobe. Specifically, we have a whole set of Carr's underwear. Fifty triangular loincloths were found in the tomb. They were freshly laundered, thank goodness, but there actually were some dirty ones as well, which the mourners had considerately packed in a separate box by themselves. These loincloths are made of linen, and some of them are quite worn, with many holes, so they are Carr's actual clothes, not funerary apparel. The best part, my absolute favourite, is that all of Carr's knickers are labelled, monogrammed, with the owner's name in black stitching. Which is, well, that's just wonderful. For everyone who has ever labelled their underwear, K 
Ka salutes you. Hey, Grandpa, we need to know your first name. <gasps> You're making my tombstone! No, we're just curious. All right, let's see. First name, first name. Well, whenever I'm confused, I just check my underwear. It holds the answer to all the important questions. Call me Abraham Simpson. Grandpa, how'd you take off your underwear without taking off your pants? I don't know. Apart from their personal effects, Ka and Merit also went to the afterlife with some truly special items. Firstly, I want to give a shout out to a board game, which Ka and Merit took on their eternal journey. This is the game Senet, ancient Egypt's most famous pastime. The game is well known from art, but only a few physical examples survive. Ka and Merit had a beautiful one. Ka and Merit's Senet is a rectangular box made of wood, about 43 centimetres long. It's quite worn, not pristine, so it's probably one that was used in life. In death, Senet was a serious game. According to one of the spells in the Book of the Dead, a game of Senet was played for the utmost stakes. Whoever won, their soul, or ba, would emerge from the game intact. The loser, well, their fate was not so kind. The Senet board which Ka and Merit took was made of wood and had a wooden drawer which slid out to hold the game pieces. Along one end, hieroglyphs mark the ownership of the box, which actually wasn't Ka and Merit. Curiously, this Senet board seems to have been a gift, perhaps from a family friend. One end of the box shows a family, which is not Ka and Merit's family, who may have been the original owners. My guess is that the owner gifted the Senet to Ka as a parting gift on the occasion of his death, but that's just a guess. It's not clear how this came into the couple's possession. Finally, the pièce de résistance of Ka and Merit's tomb is a long papyrus containing their Book of the Dead. This text, known to the Egyptians as the Book of Going Forth in the Day, was the preeminent funerary text of the late 18th dynasty. While kings went to their afterlife with different scriptures, non-royal individuals with enough wealth might commission a Book of the Dead for their own eternity. Ka and Merit were lucky enough to afford one of these. The Book of the Dead is written on a papyrus roll some 13.8 metres long, and it contains 33 individual chapters. This text was personalised for the use of Ka and Merit themselves. The couple appear in white linen gowns with scented cones atop their heads. They hold their hands up in adoration before Osiris, who is seated on his throne, green skin standing out from the yellow background. Many of these images are so beautiful that they have become standard reference images for more popular guidebooks to Egyptian religion. If you see a picture of the Book of the Dead in any general text, there's a reasonably good chance it's from Ka and Merit. When Ka died, he was buried in the tomb alongside his wife. The mourners then sealed the grave, locked the door, and buried the entrance. For 3,300 years, the tomb of this couple lay quiet. The years passed, the Egyptian kingdoms flourished and fell. Invaders came to the Nile Valley, religions altered society, and still the couple slumbered peacefully. That is until February 15th, 1906, when sunlight shone on the door once again. On that day, Ka and Merit re-emerged along with their tomb goods. The intact grave contained more than 500 objects belonging to the couple. 
Almost all of these goods were transferred out of Egypt to the Egyptian Museum in Turin, Italy. They remain there today in their own exhibition. So, if you're ever in Turin, swing by that museum and check out the burial goods of Ka and Merit. By the by, the mummies of Ka and Merit remain in their original wrappings. They have never been opened or disturbed, except by non-invasive X-ray and CT scans. So, points to Schiaparelli and Weigal for resisting the temptation. Ka and Merit slumber on in their protective shrouds, their faces unseen since the mourners sealed them away. After death, Ka and Merit were survived by three children. There was one daughter, also named Merit, we'll call her Merit too, and there were two sons named Nakdef Taneb and Amenem Opet. We don't know much about them, except that the youngest son, Amenem Opet, donated a stela to his parents. A stela that actually got discovered about a hundred years before this tomb was opened. Ironically, Amenem Opet's stela for Ka and Merit made its way to Savoy, and then to Turin. So the whole family collection is back together by a freak coincidence of history. On February 15, 1906, a tomb came to light that is unique in Egyptology. This burial hall was 100% intact, untouched since the day it was sealed. For comparison, even the tombs of Tutankhamun and Yuya and Toya had been disturbed at least once before they disappeared into history. So, if those famous tombs are 99% complete, the tomb of Ka and Merit is the only one, so far, that is 100%. A lucky break for a middle-class couple living 3,400 years ago. Hello everyone, Dominic here, with a small extra bit of material related to this episode. I noted earlier that the Book of the Dead belonging to Ka and Merit shows the couple standing before Osiris. They wear white linen robes, and atop their heads there are scented cones of a type we often see in Egyptian tombs. For as long as Egyptology has been a science, archaeologists have noticed these cones in the artwork of various burials. But no physical example of such cones has ever come to light. That is, until now. In December 2019, archaeologists working at the city of Amarna, Akhenaten city, announced the discovery of funerary cones in a cemetery. Two skeletons emerged from a cemetery in the eastern part of Amarna. One belonged to a woman, who had died between 20 and 29 years of age. The other belonged to a young person of unknown sex, who was about 15 to 20 when he or she died. These individuals both went to their graves with small cones made of beeswax atop their heads. The cones are small, about 8 centimeters long, or 3.1 inches, and they were stuck to the top of these people's hair. Suffice to say, this was an exciting discovery, the first physical example of these cones yet found. Unfortunately, the discovery raises many questions. Traditionally, Egyptologists assumed that these cones were intended to melt and provide a lovely scent for the person who was wearing the item. 
Unfortunately, these particular examples don't seem to have any perfume qualities, so we're still not sure exactly what they're used for. Obviously, this is only a preliminary report. Further analysis is necessary, and it may be some time before the full conclusions are published in an academic journal. Nevertheless, it's an exciting find, and it provides a wonderful connection with the art that we see in Carr and Marit's Book of the Dead. That's all from me. I'll be back soon. Enjoy your holiday break, and the History of Egypt podcast will return very shortly. Thanks. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.